Good morning, dear friends. I am so glad to be back with you. I am so thankful to my colleagues for filling in rather last minute. Um, and to those of you who have asked where I was, thank you for your concern, but I am back. And I am back to share with you something interesting and profound as we have been discussing about the text in the book of Hebrews. Today we look at Jesus the one who guards our soul, the one who gives us hope for the future. And I'm just delighted to have this opportunity to converse with you as we delve in to the sixth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, before we do that, we're going to do what we always do, which is simply ask for God's presence and his blessing upon our conversation. So won't you pray with me? Dear Father, we are so thankful that we can come together. And as we come together, we can begin to understand and to move and to be shaped in the ways that you want us to move and that you want to shape us. We pray that you stay with us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's funny how the most innocuous event can change your perspective. Funny how a different set of circumstances can make you reassess who you are, or even more, who the people around you are. Now, this week, our collective nation and the world places its focus on the biggest game of them all. I'm, of course, referring to that game that will be played tomorrow, if not 60 miles from here. The players are granted gargantuous contracts. The field is a whopping billion dollars. Uh, the viewership will be in the millions. And all of us look because... Even those of us who are not that interested in football know that this, this is where stories and legacies are created. I've been, I've been thinking about stories and legacies. I've been thinking about how a shift in the storyline or in the narrative can drastically alter how you are perceived. Take, for instance, one of the most important players in tomorrow's game. He was the number one pick, uh, destined to go to a franchise that had had many years of futile results. His name's Matthew Stafford. Now, Stafford had thrown for, for the 17th most number of yards in NFL history, and he's only 33. Stafford had had eye-popping seasons he went as far as to accomplish the feat of throwing for 5,000 yards in one of these seasons. Yet Stafford was typically regarded as a stat patter, as somebody that would lose the big game, as somebody that didn't have the correct attitude or temperament to guide his team to victory. You would hear about the eye-popping statistics, but you would also hear about his inability to win in the playoffs. 
some reporters when looking at their at his individual statistics and comparing them to those of another well-regarded quarterback who plays for uh, the Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers, said that if the places would have been reversed, perhaps and just perhaps, Stafford could have had a different individual story. That is until this year. Because he has led his team and my team, the L.A. Rams, to three straight victories in the playoffs. And he has been instrumental to those victories. And suddenly, you have heard the narrative begin to change. You have heard the way in which he is perceived begin to change. Now, there has been very little that has actually changed about who Matthew Stafford is or how he plays the game. But the circumstances around him have caused him to be regarded in a new light. I was thinking about this as I was reading the epistle to the Hebrews. You see, the author is desperately attempting to have us understand that the presence of Jesus and the introduction in Jesus ought to radically alter the way we perceive ourselves. The narrative has shifted with the incarnation and our story has changed from one of defeat to one of victory. As we've talked about before, the first couple of chapters begin to ask these questions. It's almost as if the author is trying to employ exhortation to inspire his audience to recognize the gift that Christ has bestowed upon us. But the theme changes a little in chapter 6. And we're going to read a section in chapter 6, beginning with verse 4, which the lesson points to as it begins to dissect who Jesus is in the economy of the narrative. But before we jump into the text, let me give you a brief synopsis of what is actually going on. At this point, the tone of the narrative, the tone that the author uses is beginning to change. It is moving away from exhortation into exposition. So for the first couple of chapters, the author has been asking his readers to do something. He's been pleading with them. But now, now he is going to engage in a beautifully complex exposition of who Jesus is. It's interesting because as he moves and begins to write, write the first three verses in chapter 6, the language, at least in the original, is very personal. He says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teaching about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. And of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. What strikes me is, as the author is attempting to parlay these teachings that we have about who Jesus is into the ways we live our life, the language is deeply personal. It's an invitation to participate in this saved community that Christ has come to collect. But as we move into verse 4, the language changes. 
And the language changes because the author is now going to begin to consider what I'd like to call the impossible possibility. In other words, how can one reject the gift that God has bestowed upon us in spite of the overwhelming evidence that God indeed is a good and gracious God? How can we continue believing in narratives that are false in spite of the fact that the circumstances around us with the incarnation have changed? As he begins to talk about the possibility of perdition, about the idea that one might be lost, I find it extremely interesting that the language moves from it being very personal to it being impersonal. Verse 4 begins actually with a conjunction. The conjunction in Greek is gar. And gar simply means for. But what it does is, is it actually shifts the foci of the text from the church to this potential problem that is falling into apostasy. So let's begin to read, shall we? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Now, the reason why I began by sharing that this is impersonal is that the author is not actually talking about something that is happening or that will happen. What he is actually trying to make us reflect upon is the possibility that one might turn away from the gift of Christ and fall. Now, as Christians in the 21st century, we don't talk much about the idea of apostasy. We don't talk much about the notion of falling away. We live in a church milieu, in a culture where we believe that grace covers a multitude of sins, that everything can be forgiven. And while I find that particular principle compelling, I also need to remind you that the people living in the first century, these, these people that are participating in this growing movement called Christianity have a very different interpretation of sin. You see, for them, sin is a serious problem. For them, the problem of sin is so serious that it necessitated the death and resurrection of Christ to solve. The sacrifice needed to be on par with the problem. And so the idea of experiencing salvation in Jesus and then forgetting about that experience or returning back to our old life was something that they couldn't comprehend. So here, the author begins to deal with this potential, the potential for apostasy. Let's keep reading. I want to focus on the second part of verse 6. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So notice how important the problem of sin is for the author of Hebrews. 
And the author of Hebrews says that if once we have tasted and received the gift that is salvation in Jesus, to reject that gift and to go back to our previous life is paramount to crucifying Christ again. Why? Because the author of Hebrews believes in the power of the cross. The author of Hebrews believes in the power of grace and believes in the, in the transformative power of atoning sacrifice that Christ came to present for us. And that is so different and so otherworldly that the author of Hebrews says it is impossible to go back. If you go back, it's because you haven't really understood what Jesus has done. And your lack of understanding is paramount to crucifying him, him again. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless in the end and is in danger of being cursed and in the end will be burned. So the author then moves away from this heady exposition on what sin does and what apostasy can do to our understanding of the cross to present before us an example that comes from agriculture. This notion of a land that is fruitful and that produces fruit and then a land that produces thorns and thistles. And how the land that produces thorns and thistles is ultimately useless. Now, I want to point something else to you. The author of Hebrews is not talking at this moment about people who are outside the community of Christ. He is not talking about those who live in the profane world. He is talking a bit about the church. See, the author of Hebrews understands something that we often fail to recognize, and that is that as Christians, the ethical, moral, and spiritual responsibility that we bear as emissaries of Christ in the world is far greater than the responsibility that people in the profane world face. So, our harshest critiques and their harshest critiques were always reserved not for the people that were defined as quote-unquote sinners, but rather for those of us who are living inside the church. This is an internal conversation, and it is an internal conversation that is had because there needs to be at least a certain degree of accountability within the church. Now, again, in verse 9, he moves from this potential problem that uses the impersonal introduction of that Greek con conjunction gar to a more personal language. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. So here's what I find marvelous. The author of Hebrews depersonalizes the potential of apostasy in order to reinforce the reality of people who have been elected by God. He says... Even though we speak like this, dear brothers, in an allegorical and potential way, we are convinced of better things. That in your case, the things that you that have to do with salvation, that God is not unjust, that he will not forget your work, and that the love 
you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help him. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may very well be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. That last phrase is really important in the overall theme that the author begins to develop. Now, the word in my Bible in our NIV is translated as promise, but a probably uh, better translation, and some of your versions might have endurance, so that through faith and endurance, um, you might inherit. Probably a better translation, though, of the original language is long-suffering. So here's what the author is saying. So that through faith and patience, or so, so that through faith and long suffering, you might inherit what has been promised. Now, why is this, this idea of long suffering important? Because that notion of being resilient in the face of opposition, of being long suffering in the face of problems that are befalling upon you, is going to serve as the literary connection between the church that the author of Hebrews is attempting to talk to and the notion of Abraham, which is going to be central to the next couple chapters. Notice that now that he's made this introduction in verse 13, we immediately go to the idea of Abraham. And notice that as you read verses 13 and on, the notion of Abraham has to do with the blessing that is be, that will be bestowed upon Abraham and on, upon his descendants. Now, what I find particularly poignant to point out at this moment is that in that section, in that passage, the church that Paul is writing to is actually referred to as part and parcel of the descendants of Abraham. In other words, the author wants to, uh, us to understand that through Christ Jesus, the narrative has changed and we now are part of Abraham's seed. But that's not the most moving thing about chapter 6. Now, the lesson talked about it and touched upon it for a moment, but I want to really, really focus on this point. I want you to do me a favor and go with me very carefully to verse 19. So take a moment, if you've been listening and you don't have your Bible out, just open it up and come with me. We're going to read... Hebrews 6.19, very carefully. We have this hope. And it's interesting that the author is going to talk about hope. So he talks about the potential for apostasy. Then he makes this depersonalized language of apostasy very personal as he talks about who we are and about how we have be become co-heirs with Abraham. And then he talks about hope. But notice that the hope is linked in three specific ways. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. And here is his first mental image. The idea of hope and the soul and this nautical theme of an anchor. So we have hope and we have this anchor. Now picture that anchor for a moment. Picture this thing that provides stability. 
And what the author of Hebrews is actually saying is that the hope of Jesus changes the narrative because the hope of Jesus provides stability for life, for life that is uncertain. And let me tell you, that is as true back then as it is now. So he touches upon this nautical theme, hope as an anchor, firm and secure. Now this anchor enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now, what is this inner sanctuary? Image number two. Now, he's not only talking about this nautical image as an anchor, he's talking about a cultic image as temple. So, what basically is following is we are fastened to an anchor. This anchor goes into the inner sanctuary. Now, if you've ever seen an anchor, you can, you can probably picture in your mind that the anchor possesses hooks. So what the author is trying to do is he's trying to develop this wondrous mental image where we are fastened to the anchor, that is hope, and the anchor goes in to the inner sanctuary looking for something to hook itself on. Why? Because the inner sanctuary is not actually the Holy of Holies in the temple that has been destroyed in Jerusalem. The inner sanctuary is the presence, the visible and palpable presence of God. And so we have a, our soul has a hope that allows us to remain firm and centered because this hope is fastened in the inner, in the very presence of God. Now, how do we achieve entrance into the very presence of God so that we may fasten our hope there? Well, image number three, the idea of sports and the idea of war. Notice where our forerunner, and the word here is actually a military term that the author uses to talk about soldiers that have gone in battle before we have. And so the idea then is that our hope to latch on to the very presence of God is because Jesus has fought a previous battle to open up that possibility. Jesus has entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so he doesn't end this section with the potential for apostasy. He ends this section on a hopeful note that centers hope and the possibility of salvation on two things, on the goodness and how great a piece of news it is to be in the presence of God and how Jesus makes it possible for us to approach the presence of God with confidence, with security, and without shame. And I don't know about you, but that changes the narrative quite a bit. That the fact that Jesus can do this for us changes the way we tell the stories about who we are. So Joey's going to talk with me about what it means to have Jesus as the anchor for our soul. Joey, first off, who do you have in tomorrow's game? <laughs> Can we be friends if I don't say the Rams? We, we, will, we will be friends because it's Sabbath, but tomorrow we will have issues. No, I'm cheering for the Rams. I mean, um, my, my team is not in, in the, in the uh, Super Bowl and probably won't be for a while now. But um, yeah, I, I love your coach. He came from my team. He was our offensive coordinator right. before. 
and I just love the way the Rams play football. Mm. And of course, they're from LA, so it's important. Yeah, it's important. Yeah. And uh, for those of you who don't know Joey's team, uh, Joey has his team has has just gotten a new name. Yes, yeah, the Washington so, Commanders. The Commanders. Yes. It sounds weird, but I guess all <laughs> names sound weird until people become used to them. Yeah, it's not. It wasn't my first choice, but. Um, if we start winning, I'll start loving it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Joey, how do we feel about this notion mm. that the author of Hebrews is trying to lay before us this idea of Jesus as the anchor for our soul? Yeah, I love how you began this with that imagery of Matthew Stafford and how his story changed when he came to the Rams um, and how he was known as this guy that couldn't win playoff games. You know, he went to three playoffs lost every single um, game mm-hmm. that he played in the playoffs and then he wins three in a row it's sort of it's sort of biblical right like the you know like uh, peter denied christ mm. three times and then he added opportunity to affirm mm. christ three times it's i love like, that i love like that modern day peter. <laughs> but um so I, I love the change in narrative and the fact that that's what jesus does for us mm-hmm. he changes our narrative and that there's always hope for us if, if we are anchored to Jesus. So that, that imagery was so powerful for me. Yeah, and he changes, and, he, and I think that what you're talking about, Joey, changes the way we perceive ourselves. Mm. So before the idea of being co-heirs with Abraham or the idea of being a priestly kingdom like, the, like Hebrews will begin to develop yeah. that concept in, in a few chapters, that idea would have been completely foreign to us because, after all, we're broken by shame and by sin and by all these things. Much in the same way that I think Stafford's narrative before was, yeah, he's he's a good player, but he really can't win. And now people are starting to talk about him as a, as a future Hall of Famer. And it's just that change in circumstances. Uh, that change in, in, in understanding who you are and in understanding how you are to live and conduct yourself that just changes how not only your story, but how you perceive yourself, which, which I find really refreshing. Yeah. I mean, that's so powerful because like you pointed out, um, the writer of Hebrews, he deep depersonalizes this uh, this apostasy but he personalizes mm-hmm. i love how you said that because he makes it and he's saying this is not i said this this is possible but this is not what we expect mm-hmm. for you we expect something better mm-hmm. we expect we have this hope mm-hmm. for you and I, I love that because if you look at the message of scripture God is always redemptive mm-hmm. in his punishments, right? His punishments are never just punitive. It's never just to shame or to mm-hmm. hurt or to to get his pound of flesh from someone who's done something wrong. He's he's always about um, reestablishing that relationship, mm-hmm. restoring that relationship with people. And um, that's that's what the writer of Hebrews seems to be saying mm-hmm. here, is that God is, what we expect is a restoration. Mm-hmm. We expect that healing and that hope. Wow, that just that just changes completely how one ought to approach then our spiritual life because often we take the ideas of this apostasy and the potential for being lost and we are not redeemed and we want to make clear that sin is a real problem and that the author of Hebrews takes sin much more seriously than we do. Um, but 
he's saying, look, that's not, as you said, that's not what we expect for you. And too often we kind of flip that and we say, we expect, we, salvation is really hard. It, we have to fulfill these things that we need mm. to do. Uh, the, 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 the road is very narrow and people will be falling away left and right. Mm -hmm. You keep your eyes on Jesus. And it's almost like this journey that is perilous and very dangerous and very difficult. And it looks like the author of Hebrews is saying, no, that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. But it's not our expectation. Mm -hmm. Our expectation is hope anchored in the presence of God through our forerunner, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. You know, it kind of reminds me of a book I've been reading um, called Unpunishable. Mm. Um, Danny Silk, I think, is the name of the author. And he talks about how, despite this theology, we in the, in the church haven't been great at restoration. Mm. We are good at punishment, but not restoration. Um, so his subtitle is Ending Our Un Love Affair with Punishment. He says, he says, if a Christian leader fails... Our default, our default of status is either to forget it and ignore that it happened or to punish and mm. shame that person. But there is no steps taken. There is no process in place to lead that person towards restoration. And so what we generally do is we, once we get our pound of flesh, we wait. We wait till enough time has passed. And then once that enough time has passed, then we say, okay, you can come back. But we don't really process them through repentance and healing and moving beyond that sin. We don't actually lead that, lead people through that process. Um, so it's either your road with us ends here or um, we'll just wait for a while. And then when we feel like you've been punished enough, when you've been shamed enough, um, when you've done enough um, pen penance for what you've done to us, then we'll, we'll accept mm. you back. But there is no healing that's expected. There is no identifying that, that, that problem that's mm. expected. And so he says, you know, God seems to approach things a lot differently. And that seems to be what the um, author Oh, well, wow, that is, is so thoughtful, Joey. And, you know, as, as you were speaking, this, this idea came to my mind that a lot of times we bemoan the fact that culture... Uh, is seeping into the church. In that particular issue, it mm -hmm. seems like the culture of the church has seeped into the wider culture that is that is our country. Uh, just think about this new phenomenon, right? The idea of cancel culture. Mm. Um, while uh, there have been many good things that have come out of having some some real conversations on race, on gender, on violence, on oppression and abuse. Those are all, I think, conversations that need to be had. The problem is that we've, we've had the conversation, we've identified the problem, mm. and then we have expelled uh, people, we've exiled them with no path for restoration mm. or restitution. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is We've, we create these barriers, much in the same way, I think, mm -hmm. that, that you're referring to as part of, as part of the church, uh, where the church had these processes uh, for discipline and make sure you 
perform your penance as you've been saying yeah. but there was real there, there was no real formula for reintegration um and i think what that does is it it causes us to uh, to either idolize uh, mm. people that we follow and our leaders and put them on pedestals that it's impossible mm. uh to for them to live up to or it, it 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 makes us a bit cynical mm. about about people who are calling us to live a better life. There was an article uh, that was just published um, because there have been some in Britain in a conservative magazine in in Britain. Uh, as you might or might know, uh, the FBI recently unclassified some documents of J. Edgar Hoover's long long surveillance uh, of Martin Luther King. Mm. And so, these um, these new leak uh, these new released documents have actually n- noted a lot of really serious character flaws that mm. Dr. King had. Mm. Um, the people in in Britain were asking the question, "Well, what do we do with this?" Mm. And so, uh, the conservative uh, aisle was saying, "Well, you've canceled all these other people." Mm. Uh, Seems like you need to cancel Dr. King, and um, really, the the more progressive wing of uh, of the country had no real answer for it, and so they then uh, passed on the story to several news outlets in America that refused to publish it because apparently we weren't mature enough to have that conversation. And I think we're not mature enough to have that conversation because we haven't really thought through that process that you're talking about, this idea of, yes, identifying wrongdoings is important. Yes, calling people to accountability is important. Mm. But then telling them, we're we're calling you to accountability because we expect more from you. Um, And so this is the path that you need to now walk through in order to live up to the expectations that God has for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, as you were thinking, this, 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 this idea came into my mind of kind of the, this, this really coarse reaction to, cult, to canceling each other that happens in church and how that's kind of now moved into society at large. I love that connection. I, I, I hadn't thought of it before, which is why I love having these conversations. Yeah, that we... Our default in society is when we find a fault with somebody, we cancel them, mm-hmm. right? We just say, well, because you're broken, you no longer get to be a leader. You no, no longer get to be someone that we look up to because you have these flaws. Not realizing that all of us have those mm. flaws. And and that's what th- this author, Danny Silk, talks about. He says, when you live in that kind of space where it's where the only recourse for us admitting that we're broken is punishment mm. and no way back, that just leads to hiddenness, mm-hmm. right? There, and, and we know we know that the only way to healing is honesty, mm-hmm. not hiddenness, right? That's why scripture talks about confessing our sins mm-hmm. to each other, right? Th- that only by shining a light on the, on the mildew of sin in our lives does it start to die, right? But if, if our only recourse or only, the only response the church has to admitting sin is punishment, then there is no space for people to actually have wow. honesty, wow. which keeps us from moving towards healing, yeah. right? And that's, that's, we've put ourselves really in this impossible space because there is no possibility of growth when we don't open the door 
to honesty and restoration. Wow, that is so powerfully said. And then the other thing it does is it, it causes us to grapple with either guilt if we're placed mm. in any leadership position, yeah. right? Because we're saying, oh man, if they only knew. Yeah. Or it makes us hesitant to actually live out the purpose that God has for our lives because you look at your own brokenness and you think, ooh, this disqualifies me. And isn't that then the reason why Scripture highlights the great, great moral failings of men and women who we think are, are examples? Abraham, David, uh, you give me a, a, a character in Scripture, and Scripture is not going to be nervous about pointing out some deep, deep-seated yeah. issues and character flaws that these people had. And I think the message behind that is, yes, they were broken. Yes, punishment happened. Yes, there were consequences. But there was also a path to restoration. And in the end, these people are called men and women after God's own heart. Yeah. Could you imagine if King David was president of the United States and he did what he did? I mean, would there be any path towards restoration? No. Or, I mean, for what, sleeping with one of your soldiers' wives and then putting him into battle on the front line so yeah. he dies so you could hide? I mean, come on now. That is just, that's all, and that's only one of the things that he mm. did, right? I mean, it's just terrible. Abraham, you know, Abraham and lying about his wife being his sister and then placing her in that very uncomfortable mm. position. He and his wife using a slave as a as a, um, a surrogate for their baby and w without any choice. Of, I mean, come on, this is this is it's just terrible things. And yet, and yet, God, God actually points to them. He calls David a man after my mm. own heart calls Abraham as as the father of faith, right? So even though they did some terrible things and they had tremendous brokenness within them, they, there was a path towards restoration wow. for both of them. And then the hope becomes, because Jesus is the, key, the hope for my soul, yeah. there's nothing that, that... That's why... This idea of apostasy and being lost forever is so foreign to the author of Hebrews. That's why he doesn't even want to consider it as a possibility. He says, hey, there's this potential problem out there, but I don't want to even think about the possibility. Because if you see people throughout Scripture and how God uses them and restores them amidst their brokenness, you will see that there is no place that you can go, no sin that you can commit that will cause you to be outside of the grace and mercy of God as long as you have the capability of confessing and admitting and then engaging in this process of repentance when that happens the answer of christ and the answer that god has for us is always yes yeah so that's the good news right that's the good news of this passage but then there is that that part that he begins with right this um depersonalized possibility of apostasy so then how do we deal with that i mean does it mean I mean, it can't possibly mean that he that if we sin, once we've started following God, if we if we sin, then we can't return because we just listed all these people who did terrible things after they started following God. So so what does that mean? How, how do we interpret that? What what does it mean that um, once we've been 
as it says in uh, verse 4 and 5, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of, the, of God and, and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? How do we, how do we take that? I think it, it's the inability to recognize the magnitude of the sacrifice that God mm-hmm. has performed for us. Yeah. And that... I think that f- failure to recognize what Jesus has done puts you in a prison of your own making, a mm. prison built of shame and guilt, and a prison that says you're never going to measure up. Um, the As I was reading this earlier this week, the, the character that came to my mind was Judas. I mean, mm. think about think about what's happening there. Uh, some scholars will say that what Judas is actually trying to do by going to the religious leaders uh, in Jerusalem is to force Jesus's hand mm-hmm. because Ju- Judas still believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so he says, well, if he's not going to do it on his own, I'm going to force his hand because certainly God, the Messiah is not going to die. Mm-hmm. And so what he's expecting is he's expecting Jesus when it confronted by the the possibility of going to the cross to actually unleash his power and do everything and fulfill these expectations that Judas has. And when Judas sees that this is not going to happen, I can just imagine the the wave of terror that comes upon him, right? I have actually betrayed an innocent man. And that that guilt and that shame causes him to hang himself. Mm. Flip the flip it over, and look at somebody that does exactly the same thing that Judas does. And you mentioned him, mm-hmm. right? Um, Peter. Peter is ha- Peter. If Peter does very much the same thing that Judas does. Now, what the difference I think between both of them is that when Peter sees Jesus on the shore after he said we failed jesus wasn't the messiah that's the implication with let's go back and fish let's go back to our old life because we believed in this in this fairy tale peter sees jesus and instead of running he jumps into the water and swims towards him and and that's i think the the easiest the easiest thing that or the easiest way in which i can explain these two differences one believed that his broken, that there was no coming back, that his brokenness and his sin disqualified him from the presence of God forever. Mm-hmm. The other one recognized that because, his broke, because of his brokenness, he needed to run to God. And that, I think, is, is the capacity. I think the problem then lies not in us falling away, because at some point, many of us fall away. Uh, the problem is in making God's grace too small or too limited. And so I think as long as we recognize how big God's grace is, there's always a path to come back home. Wow. And that that seems to make sense because it says um, the the characteristics is falling away so that they, they crucify themselves, the Son of God, put him to open shame, um, and that we... 
um, we trample on the uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So these are this imagery is basically saying that I am discounting mm-hmm. how important these, mm-hmm. how big God's grace really is. I'm I'm saying that my sin is so great, and that really is is some hubris, is some mm-hmm. arrogance to say yes, that sir. I am such a great sinner that even God, mm-hmm. who is so graceful, can't forgive mm-hmm. me. But it is that depth of shame that keeps us from coming back. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between, you're saying, between Peter and Judas, yeah. is that Peter, though he understood the depth of his shame, he also understood the depth of God's love yeah. and was willing to come back into it. Wow. Yeah, that's, and that really, really, I think, again, makes us recognize how as a, as a church, both a local church and institutionally and as a, as a Christian movement, how far we have to go mm. because our grace isn't that big. Um, our grace is limit, limited. Yeah. And if we are really called to embody Christ on earth, there's some work that we have to do in at least attempting to have the way we approach sin uh, match up with the way God approaches sin. Mm. So um, you've, we've read and we've talked about here before, Joey, um, about all these people that we look up to, mm. uh, Christian leaders, who for a variety of reasons, whether it's um, issues of immoral of sexual immorality or issues of financial impropriety or issues of just toxic personality and abuse all these christian leaders that have been a blessing to our life um have now been expelled and and we dare not even talk about them and the question is well what do we do with the writings or what do we do with these things that have inspired us there's got to be a better way um how do we get to that place? Um, and I'm just going to volley the question back to you. If we understand that God's grace is that big, how do we get to a place where we're able to balance the recognition that sin is big and that sin is a painful problem that causes real, real pain and, and, and issues um, in the world? And at the same time, God's grace is always bigger than our sin. How do we balance those those two notions? I think it begins with um, really recognizing that sin is big and that just by ignoring it doesn't mean that it's going to go away, right? Just because it's hidden for a while, it's not just going to disappear. Mm-hmm. Sin will rear its ugly head no matter how hard we try to hide it, right? So it's recognizing how big sin is and creating a space where people can be honest about their sin, to look at that sin and say, um, this brokenness is who I am, and then to have the community of, of faith to be able to help them examine and understand the depth of that sin. It's kind of like any disease, right? Um, the first step towards healing for any sickness is to recognize that we have a problem mm-hmm. and admit it, right? Like if, if a, doc- a doctor diagnoses me with cancer, and I just say, well, I don't believe you. I'm not, I don't have cancer inside, right? If I say that, then I can't actually heal, right? I actually need to get, I need to change some things in order to heal. So that first step is admitting that I have a problem. And then, and then 
going to get help, right? Like, because I can't fight this on my own, Mm -hmm. right? So asking God for help, asking the community of faith for help, engaging others in that help, and then going through a very painful, hurtful Mm. process to actually get healing. Because if I want to fight that that cancer, then I'm going to have to go through some some healing that actually will hurt me a little bit initially, right? right. There's going to be pain involved in this healing process. There's, you know, um, chemotherapy is not, a, it's, it's no. brutal, right? It's brutal to our bodies. And yet that's what's necessary to, to excise that cancer. Oof. And it's the same thing with, with sin. It's not just punishing for punishment's sake. If we're really serious about restoration, then we need to create a healing process where people can look at that sin and understand what brokenness is there and to get healing for that brokenness. What is it that leads me to cheat on my wife? What is it that leads me to pornography? What is it that leads me to lie? What is it that leads me to arrogance, right? What is that brokenness inside of me that leads me to these sins? Mm. And and how can I how can I move towards healing from them because it's not as magical and saying, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore and all of a sudden goes away. There's going to be a process Mm. involved in getting healing. And so when we recognize really the magnitude of our sin and then understand the magnitude of God's grace, it means that we understand that this process is going to be hurt. It's going to hurt and it's going to be hard, but there is is healing at the end of it. Well, that's just beautifully said. And I love the fact that you move the idea of sin from the action, right? Uh, whether it's infidelity or pornography or uh, lying or, or anything else, um, that you move that from, from that action, which is what we all like to focus on, to something deeper. There's something deeper in me that's broken. And these these actions that are hurtful, and they're not only hurtful to to the people uh, that are surround me, they're hurtful to myself. Mm-hmm. These actions are my way of dealing with the brokenness. And mm-hmm. so it's going to be, I love the way you put it, it's going to be a painful process because healing requ- is going to require to y- you to face that which we don't want to face. Mm-hmm. We want to believe that we're okay, that we're capable, that we've got it under control. And healing is going to... F- make us face the abyss and say and look back and say there's some real serious issues within me i just i just love that idea of sin and and grace and redemption joey we're out of time we could talk for another hour about football or other matters but um sadly our time is up so would you close us off in, in prayer let's bow our heads good and gracious god we are in awe of your grace. Sometimes we underestimate how much grace, how much love you have for us. We're tempted to think that our sin is too great, Mm. that the things that we've done are just too wrong. And yet you've shown us over and over again in the history of your people that your love is limitless, that your grace knows no bounds that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. So we ask that you help us to really recognize how great your grace is, even while we examine the greatness of our sin, so that we can move towards 
move courageously towards healing. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And remember always, friends, the God you serve is a great God. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the Sabbath and a beautiful week. See you next time. Thank you.